This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. This week is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite early episodes of Insights at the Edge, and one of the episodes that has received the most positive feedback from listeners, Radical Acceptance with Tara Brock. Tara Brock is an author, clinical psychologist, and the founder and senior teacher of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C. She's the author of the Sounds True Audio Learning Program, Radical Acceptance, A Buddhist Guide to Freeing Yourself from Shame, and a program on meditations for emotional healing. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I talk with Tara about radical acceptance in the face of difficult emotions. Here's my conversation with Tara Brock. Hi, Tara. Welcome. Hi. Sounds True publishes lots of different programs on working with emotions. And one of the things I've noticed is that sometimes some of the authors talk about something that they call negative emotions. And, you know, I'm always like, well, negative emotions, you know, anger, fear, uh, even sometimes, you know, sorrow, being lost in sorrow or depression. These can be quote unquote negative. So I'm curious if you have a view. Do you think any of the emotions are quote unquote negative? Um, I don't use the word negative. And the reason is every emotion feels like it has intelligence and that our nervous systems were designed to to have them for a reason. And that when they cause suffering, rather than being negative, it's just when, um, our whole, when our sense of being has gotten identified with them. So it's not that it's bad, like it's not something bad happening as much as we've lost sight of who we are and our sense of self is now identified with I have to have that or that I hate, you know. And, and there's a kind of contracting and a losing sight of something. So in that way, they can, be, they can cause harm, but they're not negative, and any emotion can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, you mean even an emo- people think an emotion that's positive would be something like joy. Yeah, and you can get attached to joy, and I'm a joyful person, and if I don't feel joyful, I, my spiritual path is in some way not being fruitful. And, you know, so that can, it's like all of them are passing states. They're all different, you know, biochemical, subtle energy, gross energy states that, like the outside weather, they come and go. And if our sense of um, who we are and how things should be are hitched to them, then we're in trouble because they will come and go. Mm -hmm. 
so the real freedom is in relating to the emotions at, you know, their waves in the ocean that, that arise and pass, but they don't define us. So let's take an emotion that we don't have to call negative, but it's clearly difficult, very difficult for people. Something like shame, which I know is something that you've written about and teach about. So I'm feeling this incredible sense of shame about some way that I've acted. Now, what's the intelligence in shame? It seems like it's, you know, I feel terrible. What, what could be intelligent yeah. about this? I know. I wondered that. When I started trying to research animals, because usually you can find out if it's rigged in the mammals, there's some survival function. And there is like a survival function in shame if there's some, there's an upwelling of um, that kind of clutch that you've stepped outside the boundary of what's okay for your collective community. And that physical sensation lets you know you better hide it or back off, because if you show it, you'll get excommunicated in some way. So it's a signal that you've stepped outside something. Now, it may be that it's rare, I think, these days that that's, that we've got it so hyped that it's not useful. I mean, we've got so many standards that we're trying to meet that if we don't meet, we feel a sense of shame about, that most times shame is really proliferated and causes harm. Mm-hmm. We get possessed by it and so mm-hmm. on. But it can be just a signal, and it can tell us to back off, go to the left, go to the right. Well, can you tell me in the in the animal kingdom, the natural kingdom, how does shame appear? Like what species doing what? I mean, what would be? Well, dogs feel shame. They know when they've in some way done something their owners don't want them to do, and the tail between the yeah. legs is is shame. So it's kind of, it helps to get cooperation. Right. But it's misused and, and you know... I, as I say, I rarely see shame being something that ends up being useful in this culture. No, in an animal, though, it's it's pretty quick. I mean, yep. their tails between their legs, is, we're talking and about. And that's for, the difference know. between humans and animals, is that because of our thinking mind and because we do so much remembering and planning, rather than the flicker that emotion can be, it locks in. We do this looping where we have thoughts that create these feelings, and these feelings generate more thoughts, and then we get locked into, it becomes a mood, and, and we get habituated, and then our sense of self actually gets identified with that mood. So mm-hmm. it becomes less useful, and that's why so much of the freedom comes when we can pause and begin to not believe the thoughts and just contact the raw sensation. Mm-hmm. You know, over and over again, I've, I watch how people wake up out of the grip of really painful emotions when they're really identified. And the sequence always involves a pausing. And I, you know, I call it the sacred pause because we tumble into the future. We're, we're constantly in this kind of a reactivity of on our way to what's next. And we do it emotionally too. This thought creates this. So pausing creates a space to actually deepen presence. Mm-hmm. And in that space, unless the presence is brought to how the feeling is in the body, there's no freedom because the identification will still be there. But if you can pause enough to feel the feeling in the body, then there is a loosening and a kind of rearriving in a sense of presence that's home. It's more what we are. And then we can begin to see emotions again as passing, coming and going. Now, of course, I can imagine what you're saying if the 
emotional experience, even let's just stick with shame, isn't that um, strong of a grip. But how do you generate a pause when you're really uh, taken over by an emotional experience? It might be a long way down the track. Mm. In other words, we eventually do pause. I mean, there's no healing without some, oh, this is what's happening, okay, and some shift in how we're relating to. So mm-hmm. there is a movement from reacting to to relating to. Um, so, But it may happen way down the track, and part of the practice of meditation is that the lag time gets less, you know, that you have the same triggers and the same reactions, but more quickly awareness remembers. Mm-hmm. Awareness goes, oh, there's some remembering and some pausing. Um, I've been really valuing the acronym RAIN as a um, kind of an assistance in remembering because when we're in emotional reaction, it's such a trance. I mean, we're so believing that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's to me, that's almost like the undercurrent of all emotional suffering is something's wrong, and usually something's wrong with me. Now, it could be that the person has a... I mean, something is wrong. I mean, I'm... I just uh, binged and ate, you know, ten brownies, and I feel terrible about myself, and my stomach aches. Well, something's wrong. So there's a difference between wise discernment, which says this behavior caused this harmful reaction, and my body hurts. That's wise discernment, and I'm bad. The aversive judgment. So it's not bad that I ate ten brownies and feel terrible right now. No, it's you're not bad. It's a th- it, that behavior caused a harmful experience. So if you want to say it's bad that that happened and not say I'm bad, that would be at least teasing it apart some. But the reason we suffer is because very quickly the self owns it. There's a sense yeah. of I am bad or else you're bad. And as long as we're living in a world where something's wrong, I'm bad or you're bad, there's a basic dividedness that stops us from being at home. Mm-hmm. So what I, so I was going to say about RAIN, yeah. a lot of the way that so I... So this is, this is an acronym, an so acronym. R stands for something. Yeah, yeah, okay. well, yeah unpack it for me. Yeah, take your time. It's useful. It's a useful one. Um, I, I feel like the sickness in this world is homesickness in some way, that we've left home, that there's some, we're in a trance in some way, feeling like a self, feeling like the self is separate, feeling like the self is bad. That's, so that's the given of when it's suffering. And rain is a way of, if we can pause, of being able to come back home. And the ac- So here's the acronym. <laughs> the R is recognize. And on some level, there's just, okay, recognize, just binged, feel really bad. Okay? And the A is allow. And what that means is, you're in a way pausing and saying, okay, I'm going to allow, this is the actuality. I'm just allowing that this is what's true. It's like acknowledging truth, allowing, just not trying to do anything about it. You know, pause. So it's recognize and allow. And then the I is investigate. And that's just a deepening of the recognizing. Because if it's something light, if it's not a heavy emotional tangle, all you need to do is pause and just recognize and allow it. In recognizing and allowing it, there's no longer an identification. But if it's a tangle, you need to deepen presence and really investigate what's really happening. You know, what am I needing? 
you know, what am I fearing? What am I believing? You know, that kind of thing. The I also has the quality of intimacy. It has to be, you can't investigate unless there's a quality of warmth or kindness. I I know many people that try to investigate their experience, but there's a a subtle aversion or coldness Mm -hmm. and it doesn't reveal Mm -hmm. itself. So I is an intimate investigation. And when you've been present with the shame, with the I binge this hurts, in a really intimate way, the identification dissolves. And there's still hurt. You know, there's still maybe bloated. There's still maybe sorrow about it. But the sense of who you are is not identified any longer. So what, what dissolves this feeling of, like, I'm a terrible person for doing this? A profound presence. In other words, the more presence there is, the awareness itself dissolves the identification. When there's awareness of what's happening, the sense of our being resides in the awareness and the currents are still there but you're not hitched to them and that's the end of rain which is not identified Hmm. so the recognize allow investigate if you need to with intimacy um the fruit of that is not being identified it's and i also think of anna's natural presence that you've relaxed open back into or come back home to natural presence it's nice. Rain is such a nice word. I mean, it's, that's you know, what it's I, soft. It's it, also like crying. Exactly. And, and the rain rains down equally on everything. You know, yeah. there's all these... Um, and it dissolves the selfing. It dissolves the, the identification with uh-huh. the self. And again, it's a take-it-or-leave-it kind of acronym. But when we're in trance, it's so confusing and there's so much reactivity that to have some simple way of remembering... It's really remembering. Now, it's interesting that you use this word trance because I think most people might think of that word in a different way as an altered state or something like that, but you're meaning it in a specific way, a trance. Yeah, I think of a trance as um, like a dream when there's a larger reality but our perception has narrowed and fixated. Mm -hmm. So only perceiving a fragment and it's a distortion. And the deep trance that most of us are living in is there's a separateness and that there's a self here and usually along with that that the self is in some way falling short so there really can't be an experience like shame unless there's some belief in a self i mean otherwise you wouldn't be you wouldn't feel ashamed would you i'm not sure by the way because mm-hmm. again it's been reported that the kind of biochemistry yeah. of shame is in other mammals and i don't yeah. know how much thought process and and self-consciousness there is yeah but I do know that the suffering of shame involves a sense of self. Yeah. So if it's not, it might be that there's a wave of, con- of some sort of emotional contraction that's a message of, oh, you stepped outside the line. Yeah. But as soon as you have a conception of a self and that the self is bad, that's the trance. So maybe that shame wouldn't last in a prolonged way. So that the unless, identification could lock yeah. in. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it is. Uh-huh. I'd like to know more about animal research. It's just interesting that because we do have the same emotions, it just yeah. they just proliferate and cause suffering in humans. Yeah. Now I'm curious in your own life if you've invoked the RAIN acronym in, let's say, like in the last year, in something that you might be going have been going through, and what that might have been like for you, and how it worked. Oh, I do it a lot, and it's um, it's very quick, and it's not so for me. Mostly. Rain is R A, 
It's mostly this um, recognizing and allowing what's happening. And the allowing gets deeper and deeper so that there really is not a resistance to it. In the moments that there's no resistance, um, there's a dissolution of any sense of self. But I get plenty of tangles, so I have plenty of opportunity that I have to actually investigate more, you know. And I guess the big one, um, this has been the last few years, if I have a sadhana, like a kind of a, where I've dedicated more kind of, you know, focused attention, it's been around blame, around judgment mm. and blame. And um, it just gotten clearer and clearer that any time I'm blaming anybody, yeah, and blaming myself or blaming anybody, um, it's a story and it's causing separation. And that um, if I believe a story, I'm in a trance that's painful. I've left home, you know. So, so I've gotten very um, intentional. Like very, it's been very purposeful to not believe my beliefs about you're wrong or I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. That's been like a um, sadhana. You, you mean by the word sadhana, spiritual, spiritual practice? practice. Yeah. We're much more intentional. Mm-hmm. And, Can you give me a specific example of like wh- when blame, what kinds of situations might evoke blame? Yeah, in so if I'm yeah. with my family of origin and, 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 and I have some evaluation that everybody's doing things wrong, they're not yeah. doing them according to my agenda. Or I got married um, three years ago so I you know, have a later in life marriage, which is, you know, really a wonderful experience. And I'm finding, um, just as we were talking about earlier, that's the place where I can't believe myself that I get into such a small, judgy kind of place of, yeah. you know, how things should be. And and so there's suffering in it because when there's blame, then I feel like I'm closed-hearted and I'm I'm just not the loving person I want to be. Yeah. So the process has been interesting because I have a real wanting there not to be judgment. And so I'll do rain, and in a way, it's like a bargaining mind. Like, I'll be really with this, investigated, open to it, be intimate with it, so that it'll go away. You know, that's yeah. a little... And so it's not truly allowing. Yeah. And... um so I get to the point where a judgment will come up and I'll say, okay, don't believe it, feel the rawness under it, and I'll feel under it that the need is to be seen, and he's just not seeing me, and so therefore I'm judging him. for. And so I'll get that, and I'll offer myself the seeing, and I'll be with it deeply, and then, and then there'll be the non-identification, and I'll feel very spacious, and things are coming and going, and then judgment comes right back up again. And so I hit this place where, uh, and this is what was so interesting, where I got very, very deeply the sense of this despair that I couldn't stop the judgments from coming, that I was just kind of destined. It's like this self that's trying to get out of the trance that's destined to keep judging. And and it was what was really powerful is in the moment that I profoundly registered that there was no way to control it, mm-hmm. that it was just absolutely... there was no agent in here that could control the judging. In that moment, there was a surrendering. I can't even say I surrendered. It was like a surrendering to, oh, this is truth. This is how it is. Judging just keeps happening. And in that surrendering, there was a realization that it's not a self that's judging. But it wasn't an idea. It was like, judging happens, but it's not my fault. It just, it's just happening. And there was a profound kind of compassion that opened up that has 
been more of the place of resting, where um, judging happens, but it's quicker to not only not believe it, but to really get that it's not something that reflects badly on a self, and it's not generated by a self, it's just happening. And so there's a lot more of a field of compassion holding it than before when I was, tr- when I was struggling so hard to get rid of it. No, that's interesting. Judging just happens. Uh, do you think that if you sort of investigate what the roots of the judgments are, and I have judgments in these kinds of situations about these kinds of things, yeah. you wouldn't, wouldn't you potentially find something from your own early biography that would be the roots of it? So it's not like it just happens, it's that you don't potentially understand why it's happening. And that would be my question mm, I would to you. say judging is definitely conditioned, but the most existential conditioning we all have. I mean, the reason judging is universal, and it's the last, comparing mind and judging mind is considered to be the last kind of mental dualistic activity to dissolve. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in the the sequence of awakening described in the Buddhist scriptures is because... Can you describe the sequence? I'm curious what, like, how... Each of the steps? Yeah, well, what what are some of the big other things that dissolved before judging? Certain kinds of grasping... Uh-huh. Certain kinds of jealousy, certain kinds of anger, but there's something about comparing mind, the subtlety uh-huh. of this, that, and then having an uh, having a, um, a an evaluation placed on it. That yeah. is the last of the discriminations of a dualistic mind. Interesting. So there's a conditioning that's very existential that has to do with separate something's wrong, and then assigning blame as a way to control. Because as soon as you can say, "Oh, that's the cause." then there's a sense of controlling. If I know the cause, if I know you're wrong for doing such and such, I can fix you, make you different. Right. So while I might have my own karmic sequence of what made me decide certain things were wrong, the tendency to blame is pretty fundamental. It's beyond my own personal history. So what you're saying now is that when judging or blame emerges, you notice yourself, whether you're comparing with someone else or you're blaming someone or putting down somebody, yeah. You know, the the metaphor I used for it is in certain situations, I notice myself kind of finding a shelf I can stand on. Yes. And I'm like, why am I finding a shelf that's relative to their shelf? Like, you know, what am I doing? Uh, You're saying you recognize that and you allow it. Now, what about the, 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 the second two steps? Well, the when there's a real step, tangle, yeah. I'll investigate it, and you know, because how, how do you do that? What are you doing? I'll, if I'm judging and if I'm angry, if I if I ask myself the question, if I wasn't, um, if I didn't have an aversive judgment now, if I wasn't blaming you, what would I have to feel? Okay, Excuse well, me for so, using so, you. That's fine, but so, what do you mean aversive judgment? So let's say with my husband, yeah. I have some critique, like he's um, not really slowing down and paying attention the way I want him to, to something that feels profound and important. And I'm aversive, meaning I'm angry. That feels negative. I feel like that's a put down to him. He's not, he's not deep enough to be paying attention the way I want him to. That's what I mean by an aversive judgment. So you're sort of aversive, you're sort of pulling back a little bit somehow or... Or pushing him away. Right. Okay. So let's say I have an aversive judgment, I'm pushing him away. Then I'll say, well, if I couldn't be having that story of what's wrong with him, what would I have to feel? Uh-huh. So I'll just say, if I wasn't believing that, just and always underneath the aversive judgment, there's either um, a sense of hurt or a sense of fear. 
there's a hurt like he doesn't really want to be with me or a fear of I'll never be seen. So if I can get in touch and investigate what the unmet need is underneath the blaming belief, then compassion and softening starts happening. And I often use this gesture when I teach of there's a capacity either physically or energetically to offer a sense of kindness and tenderness to that place that has a need. And I no longer am fixating on what's wrong with you. I'm responding to the unmet need. And that starts dissolving the sense of self. Because as Mm -hmm. soon as I become the compassionate presence, I'm no longer positioned inside the needy self. Mm -hmm. And the whole of freedom is a shift in identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole path is waking up from a story of a self that's either I'm wrong and the self that thinks others are wrong to that presence and that tenderness that's just awake. So how would you say you experience your identity then now? In what moment? This moment. In this moment? Well, there's there's a happiness right now, just to name a mood. It's um, because we're playing and exploring a terrain that's really alive for me. And um, there... So it feels right now like there's this kind of um, dynamism and tenderness and excitement, but not that it's happening to a self or that a self is doing something. And I don't feel like you're a self in there and I'm a self in here, but more of a sense of there's a field of awakeness and that it's holding these this conditioning of these body-minds that are interacting and that there's a warmth in it. So that's why there's a happiness because I don't feel so... Li- there's not so much of a location in here as much of a, um, a feel that's sweet. Hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you very briefly alluded to the fact that you and I were having a conversation before this conversation. Yeah. We were talking about how in your intimate relationships, uh, marriage partner or um, close family relationships, that that's where the uh, SHIT can often yeah. surface yeah. the most, no matter how expanded and, you know, you've been in different right. situations, meditation, yeah. disciplines, etc. So why is that? Why, why does the, the, the places that trigger us, why do they happen in our intimate relationships the most? Because that's where there's the most attachment. People that are closest, there's the most... We've fixed most of our needs and our hopes and our, therefore our fears around those relationships. So we hold on the most tightly to wanting them to be a certain way, freak out when they're not. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. 
And one of the things I watch is that when, and that ha- this ha- happens for everyone I know, that the most um, that there's the most pushing away and most grasping with the people closest to us, and that when we lock into that something's wrong and that there's some that and making other wrong. Well, I'll back up and say I, I was very touched by a story from an African tribe that mm-hmm. I thought was really quite beautiful. I think it's the Ku in Matuba. And they have this um, thing called the Drowning Man's Trial, where if somebody's murdered, the family has to mourn for a year. But then they put the killer on this boat, put him out on the river, they tie up his hands and his legs, and the family has to decide whether or not Oh, and then they throw him into the river. And the family has to decide whether to um, swim out and save him or whether to let him drown. And the coup believe that if they let him drown, they'll have justice, but they'll mourn for the rest of their lives. Hmm. But if they accept that things aren't always fair and that things that are painful happen and they save him, they'll have a way of healing. Hmm. And they believe that vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Hmm. Vengeance is a lazy form That's of That's very grief. deep. I'm going to have to think about that for a moment, Tara. Yeah. Huh. So vengeance meaning any, whether it's the vengeance of just um, resentment, because resentment is a form of vengeance, just playing the story of Yeah. Or yeah. whether it's the vengeance of going to war. When out of our pain we act out, then what we've done is we've moved away from the one place where there can be healing and freedom. And so with the people closest to us, there's a constant, like, very subtle dynamic of trying to control how it is, push away with this judgment. Try, and, and in the moments that instead of reacting, we just stay. We just stay. And open to what's under there, in that opening, we can refine the truth of who we are. I mean, that's really what we're, we're kind of waking up out of the small self that needs to control and coming into that, that field again. Mm-hmm. But I've been emphasizing when we're talking the blame piece because I feel like it's so big. Mm-hmm. And it's big in our intimate relationships and it's the war that's on this planet all the time. That, that we're in a constant cycle of reactivity, mm-hmm. of playing out the vengeance and... The whole evolution, really, of of consciousness has to do with being able to pause and realize that that vengeance is just going to continue to keep us in that sense of separate selves. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you say to somebody who says, when I really get identified with something that's going on that we'll call a difficult emotion, I just don't know how to pause? I just don't know how to do it. Like I can do it, sure, when I'm practicing my meditation or when things are not that difficult, or but when I'm actually like, I can't pause. What can I do? I don't know where the emergency brake is. I try, but it won't stop. It won't stop the whole emotional attack from taking me over. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is when the person's not in emotional reactivity to really reflect on their longing and their aspiration. Because... I think of the whole path as intention and attention. And that if our intention's sincere, like if we really are in touch with what matters, 
that's going to energize remembering. So the more moments that, like even right now, that we say to ourselves, if each of us pauses and um, really says what really matters, I mean, like, right this moment, what really matters the most? And when I do that, I'll do it. It's really um, loving presence, like in some way to remember and realize and live from loving presence. And that immediately softens my heart. Immediately there's, there's less of a, the shape and felt sense of a, a self. There's just mm-hmm. more tenderness. And so for someone that can't pause when there is more space, reflect on the most important thing. You know, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. And, um, and that almost sets up almost like an invitation or a gravitational field so that when they're in the thick, there's a little more remembering. Mm-hmm. to come back. So that's the intention part, and then you're saying the attention. That allows us to pay attention. Uh-huh. Really, our intention is to pay attention. Uh-huh. And um, there's so many um, techniques and so many practices yeah. out there, and it doesn't, it's so clear that it doesn't matter which one, it, like the changes I've seen in all of us in waking up is coming out of this kind of very sincere longing to be free. And that longing is like the voice of awareness calling us home. And the more that we listen to it and inhabit it, like really, inha- you know, really inhabit the longing, like trace it back and be the longing, the more there's belonging to what's true. Mm-hmm. So I, I've more and more, um, especially these last few years, I feel like it's a very deep practice to sense the prayerfulness in us. Mm. That's a funny thing for a Buddhist to say. You think? Not really, but people sometimes think so. So what do you mean by the prayerfulness? To what are you praying to? Um, I'm praying to what I am. You know, I'm calling on what I am. It's like when I'm praying, there's a prayer that says, please love me. And it's I have some kind of image of light and kind of the bodhisattva of compassion and so when there's a sense of separateness there's a longing that's please love me and then it goes deeper to that is please may I just be love just being it and when I pray and say please love me there comes a tenderness and a receptivity that lets in life because there was kind of a like that I'm separate Yeah. And when that happens, there's a realization that there's nothing out there, that I already am the love. But I had to go through, it's like John O'Donohue said that prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. And so when in separation, feeling the longing and reaching out and letting in allows us to dissolve back into that that loving presence I'm longing for is what I am. So it's kind of a trick in a way. Mm. But it's a wise trick. Mm. And and the longing is, in any moment that there's not belonging, there's some longing to come home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that phrase before, homesickness. So what what is home? What is home for you? Home is what we are. I mean, home is the the silence and the awakeness and the tenderness that's here. And the only suffering is in some way forgetting that. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you work 
both as a clinical psychologist. And you still, you see clients? Mm-mm. Not anymore. No. So when did you stop seeing clients? Oh, probably about three years ago. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. But I think my question will still hold yeah, up. Yeah. So you've spent many, much t- of your time. Many years, decades. Working with clients. Yeah. And uh, here you are. You're also, of course, an, an author and a speaker and a, and a teacher. But you're also working as a meditation instructor. And what I'm curious about is the difference when you're working with somebody as a meditation teacher and when you're working with them as a therapist. And what is the do you see a difference in the sort of unfolding process that people go through in a psychological route through working with a therapist versus what they go through working with a meditation path? Or how do you see these two things? Is it one thing? Is it two things? It's one thing. I would say with different emphases at different times, and it depends on the relationship where the emphasis is. So that's my that's a broad one. But to be more specific, if I had to describe the healing process, you know how, you know I sometimes use Jung's phrase, the unlived life. I feel like there's there's tangles that um, were too painful to be with directly, so we create these strategies not to be with them. Mm-hmm. And that healing is bringing awareness to the tangles and letting them be included in the in the wholeness of mm-hmm. being. And that it's the same thing with learning theory. The way change happens is that you can re-experience the same thing, but if you have added resources, there's a new learning. And it's the same thing in spiritual life, that if you take the same experience you've had before, the same anger, the same blame or whatever, but bring a deeper quality of kindness or noticing or whatever those added resources shift your sense of who you are in relationship to the experience and it changes the whole experience. And so in therapy, the same thing is happening. It's happening in the relational field because instead of me alone processing my own story, I'm with you and your care and your presence adds a new quality which then changes my relationship to the story. So that's on one level, there's a shift. In meditation, it tends to go more deep because there's a very clear recognition of the the story as not to get rid of it, but the story is a gateway into where the felt sense is in the body. And some Western therapies go more into that than others. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, there's a limit to how much untangling can happen. Do you think there's a limit to meditation without a therapeutic component that in terms of getting into some of the tangles, if you're just sort of meditating on your own, you won't I necessarily... Do. Oh. I do, because the relational field is really important. It's like in uh, when the Buddha taught the three refuges, one of the refuges is Sangha, and, which is the relational field. And we can meditate and still be inside this trance story of a self meditating herself to freedom. And it's very, very subtle, the sense of, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to bring rain to my stuff and I'm going to wake myself up out of such and such. And there's still some veil of delusion that I'm doing something. And in the relational field, you start touching into the the realness of this um, together, togetherness that actually cuts through the trance in a very profound way. So therapy is not a light thing. It actually wakes us up out of separation. Mm-hmm. Also, when there's been trauma, a lot of meditations cause people to get re-traumatized. C- can you explain that? Yeah, especially in the early days of um, 
I would say in all the Buddhist traditions, people would come and the instructions would be um, kind of Rumi's guest house, open, open the doors and invite in all yeah. the, the demons and, you know, bring mindfulness and yeah. voila. And if there's a lot of trauma and you open the door to it and you don't have the resilience or the space or the stability, you're just rerunning the same trauma through and, it's, you know, without anything added, it's re-traumatizing and deepens the neural pathways and the grooves and the samskaras and so on. So You mean by samskaras? The the, pat, the, the patterning uh-huh. of beliefs and feelings that have been grooved into our identity. Yeah. So that was a kind of uh, innocent but ignorant beginnings of meditation in this country is not recognizing that some people with trauma... Um, would not benefit by directly going into mindfulness practice. And instead they needed more of um, building affect tolerance, building their capacity to be with. And so for many people that I've worked with, and this is not just in um, clinically, this is at retreats, if somebody comes and they're just beginning to open up to um, really big abuse or fear or terror, Rather than saying, okay, let's be with it, I'll spend time helping them to develop um, a refuge, some resource that gives them a sense of safety and belonging and love, that gives them enough of a space, of um, a field of caring, that they actually have the capacity to be with what's so scary um, without getting possessed. Okay, so let's just slow down a little bit. So. Building affect tolerance, what does that mean? When we've been traumatized, there is, and this is, they now are able to track this biochemically, it's almost like there's a singeing so that the um, pathways between the limbic system and the cerebral cortex are not, the pathways are interfered with. And so you don't have access to some of your normal adult perspectives. You don't have access to memories that can be good coping strategies. The experience is, I am that scared young child, absolutely helpless and terrified. Mm -hmm. There's no resources. So if you've been traumatized and you're meditating, you need to find some pathways back to resources before just bringing straightforward mindfulness to what's going on. And, I mean, would potentially a sense of being able to be resourced, let's say, in the feeling of the lower belly, can you find resource in your own body in some yes, way? Yes, there's, there's, yeah, that's a, a yeah. great question, because there's different um, domains of resources. So there's simple resources like people's hand. usually a lot of people that have been traumatized, asking them to be with their breath is not helpful. Sometimes there's a sense of um, suffocating or being suffocated and not being able to catch their breath. Yeah. Um, the belly is often difficult because most of our um, gut existential fears are a clench in the belly. Mm-hmm. Later on, being able to, once there's resources, being able to start to soften the belly into the resources actually starts undoing the most core sense of self. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other subject of, you know, because each chakra you can start undoing the the way the self is perceived in that chakra. Mm -hmm. But simple um, body resources, the hands, if you can just soften the hands, you begin to send a message to the nervous system to relax. And 
The hands generally are a really good anchor and the feet can be. And sometimes feeling your whole body sitting and on the earth, mm-hmm. you know, grounding. So that's one level. Another is just having someone else present. Yeah. That's, that's just so important. And then what I usually do is ask questions to find out. So if, if you're really in a frightened place, when do you ever feel safe? When do you ever feel protected? When do you feel some sense of loving connection with somebody? So I'll kind of investigate myself, that person's kind of resource repertoire. And sometimes the only connections, like the way my dog looks at me, you know, mm. that there's no human. Sometimes it's, um, I can lean against a tree and the tree absolutely is strong enough for me to lean against it. So I'll take any tendril that people have of feeling the earth or another being. And sometimes it's a deity, you know. And then the idea is to build on that until they have really good access. They get really familiar with the safety or tenderness or belonging there. And then once that's there, then we'll start accessing where the frightening, raw feelings are and go in and out. You know, just go in enough to feel it, but then make sure to sense the, the resource there. So, so what happens in that alternation between the dredging up of the trauma and the sense of being resourced that creates healing? Initially, there's a total identification with the rawness, such as, that is me. And when you start going back and forth, you start sensing that that exists, but there's a larger sense of being that has room for it. So eventually, it's if you can trust the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. I mean, that's eventually where it goes. If you can trust this beingness, this resourcefulness as home, um, the waves can be really big and there's room. And that's ultimately, it's a shift, of an, a, a mm-hmm. profound shift in identity. But I'm not trying to make it sound like simple or short. I mean, I know people that have been for years now building the resource states and living the unlived life that way. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. saying that that process of finding a resource, whether it's a body-based resource or a, with another, could happen in a, through a meditation process or through a therapy process. Exactly. Yeah. That's a similar alternation between ocean and, em- and wave, wave emerging. Yeah. And learning to take, to find these resources. I, I call it taking refuge because it's truth. We're taking refuge in what's true. I mean, it, whether it's the look in our dog's eyes, it's still our tendril to the truth of loving presence. Mm-hmm. So we're taking it, and nobody can be alive and survive in a body without having some tendrils. So even the people that say, there's no love in my life and there's no safety, there is something. Why are you saying that with such definitive... With such definitive... Yeah, you know this, I mean. Because I've never seen it otherwise, or else people die. It's like um, it's like the monkeys that were deprived of, of touch absolutely died but if there's enough touch there's some link and that link is um, their belonging so that that you can build on that Hmm. now you you use this interesting 
metaphor that tangles within yeah. us, that there's yeah. this tangles within us that we're, we've distanced ourselves from these tangles. And I think implicit in what you were saying is that part of the process of opening to this greater sense of resource is that these will become untangled. Is that, is that the idea? And what are the tangles to begin with? And then is, are we talking about the untangling here? Uh, the tangles are our core beliefs that something's wrong or something's missing, that I'm separate, that I'm unlovable, that I will always fail, that I can't trust you. And they're not just beliefs, they're beliefs with felt sense. And so they, you know, we have a whole lot of core kind of tangles, and tangles makes them sound more solid, they're processes and the sense of being gets identified with them. Now, what do you mean processes? The processes of thoughts and feelings that trigger and loop okay. and move and respond to the environment and then, play, then contribute to the environment. It's all a very interdependent universe, but, but they're identifiable patterns, is the best I can say, without making it solid. You know? okay. so, the, so tangles are identifiable moving patterns that are have a lot of charge and that our sense of self is organized around. And part of our sense of self is the way that we try not to feel the rawness and part of our sense of self is the way we feel completely trapped in the rawness. So it's, you know, yeah. it's the whole way that we're in relationship with um, these basic beliefs that are ignorance or do not see what we are. And so how, do, how the waking up happens from this identified process is that awareness sees the tangle. And that's basically what's happening, is that awareness is what we are, and awareness gradually sees itself. It sees the tangles, it sees the energy underneath the tangles. And in seeing, there's freeing. So in any moment that I, that there's a real seeing of, oh, judging's happening, it hurts, there's no way to control it. In that seeing, there's the freeing from a sense of a self that's judging. Okay, let's pause on that one. In the seeing, there is a sense of freeing right. from the self. Well, okay, that makes sense. We're not freeing. We're not getting rid of the fear, or even necessarily the tendency to. Ju- they're still judging. Yeah. Are the jealousy? Are the hurt? That's not what seeing gets rid of. Seeing dissolves the sense of identification with it because in the moment of seeing the what we are is abiding in the in that which is seeing and we're no longer positioned in that sense of self that's owning the experience there's a shift in positioning it, and that isn't exactly the way it is but that's a language for it hmm. so we're residing in something bigger Natara, you and I spent time together when you recorded your original right. program with Sounds right. True on uh, radical self-acceptance. And that was, what, how many years ago? Um, it was probably about six years ago. Six years ago. And, yeah. you know, I commented when I saw you when we were sitting down here together that, um, to me, you've just uh, opened, expanded, grown... Mm-hmm. Uh, dissolved your sense of self, woken up further, whatever language we might want to use for it, that you've just blossomed so gorgeously. And it's just so, Aww. it is, I just feel, I feel so, and what I'm curious about is what your experience is of that, both for yourself 
and in the work you've been doing and what you're seeing happening around you, both? I sense that there is an evolution of consciousness happening, just happening. It's just happening. And um, it's happening through these body-minds that awareness is recognizing itself as these forms are being forms. And that it's really speeding up if if you get into, this is a little more on the earth plane Mm -hmm. level. But it feels like... um, whether it's the intelligence of the web, that there's just this communication that makes us more intelligent, you know, just the way between the left brain and the right brain, if the corpus callosum is thick, there's more communication. Mm -hmm. I just sense it's happening and it's speeding up. And some of the signs, some of the signs of trance to me are, um, are being speedy and being, and judging and leaving our bodies. And I, my sense in this evolution of consciousness is that there's more and more of a sense of um, pausing and listening, deepening attention, and I was talking about intention and attention, and more of a, a conscious longing to realize who we are and live from that. And I'm sensing that in more and more beings, more consciously, from all walks, and it's amazing. Hmm. I mean, just everywhere I go. Hmm. That there's, that the one who's looking out is the same as who's looking out from in here and there's, and to the extent that there's homesickness, there's a longing to come back and know what we are. And see through our, see through the mask that we see others as. Mm -hmm. And just seeing that more and more. And do you have any uh, interpretation of that phenomenon? You mean how it's possible that it's happening, or why it's happening? Why now? The you know. One of the things I think is a misunderstanding in Buddhism is that, um, you know, ignorance is bad, or that sense of self is bad. I think that there's this natural unfolding going on, whereby awareness naturally takes itself to be a form. And it also, by nature, recognizes that that's happening and wakes up to be in a form and yet in, in remembering the oceanness. And I don't understand in terms of the time of history on Earth how that happens. But there's something that just feels natural, that's just unfolding through all of us. And even though I don't think there's a self that can do anything about it, there's kind of skillful attitudes towards that. And of kind of how to cooperate or be available. And part of it has to do with being willing to slow down and, um, yeah, willing, kind of an intention to not believe our thoughts. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of, and I'm seeing more and more people just choosing that way to kind of get aligned with this evolution of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Tara. It's great to be with you. And you, really. What a pleasure. Thank you.